Hey gang, Josh here. I'm chiming in beforehand to give a short introduction. This episode is a re-release of the audio from an event at the New Museum in New York City titled After the End of History that took place in the fall of 2019. Rhizome helped me to fly out three Gen Z lefty meme posters to give a series of micro lectures followed by a panel discussion and Q&A. I've had many requests for the audio. It was previously online and the link broke sometime last year. I've been waiting for the right time to put it back up on the public feed. Two of these micro lectures were published as articles to the Rhizome blog. I've got links for those in the show notes. In the big picture, I like this project as a positive example of the role that institutions should play in society. I feel pretty certain that I am now permanently deprioritized on social media. If not exactly shadow banned, it is definitely more difficult to find me online, and that is a direct result of doing this work, posting certain content, and being in close proximity to these communities. So while I can't post these images on social media, Instagram, what have you, I can project them in the New Museum Theater. And while my online audience can't see my caption that contains, say for example, certain political keywords, I can sell physical copies of the book in the New Museum bookstore. Not only does the institution provide the physical space for critical discussions, but it also insulates artists and safeguards radical ideas that elsewhere would not be allowed. In this case, the abstract conflict of cultural institutions versus platforms becomes very real and concrete. Okay, that's enough of an intro for me. Thank you to Michael and Aria for all of your help putting this project together. I literally could not have done it without you. Thank you also to Seth. This is After the End of History, live from the New Museum on October 5th in 2019. I'm Aria Dean. I'm a rising assistant curator of NetArt and Digital Culture. Um, welcome to After the End of History. Thank you for being here today. I'm just going to give a very brief introduction and then hand it over to Josh Cedarella, who's organized today's program. If you're not familiar, Rhizome is a born digital art institution. We focus on um, art that relates to the internet and digital culture. And today, sort of politics has taken a forefront in that respect. Anyway, I'll let Josh get into that. Yeah, so usually we focus on net art and digital culture. Um, and we've spent this like the last few years doing this big net art anthology project. We were sort of archiving the history of net art. Um, and for this year's program, we've sort of turned back towards contemporary issues and contemporary art production um, related to the internet. And so um, our program is centered around three research threads um, that sort of span public programs, um, publishing and commissions, et cetera. And so this program is part of our research thread InfoWars, which is supported by Seth Stolben and the Stolben Collection. And basically InfoWars looks at political radicalization online um, in the communities both on the left and the right, especially with the focus on the youth. So today we're going to hear from some um, people who are involved in uh, some of those spheres. Yeah, so I'm gonna turn it over to Josh who will give a longer introduction, but thank you for being here. Thank you, Arya. Uh, first, I wanna thank Rhizome for bringing us all here today. This is a really special, uh, unique opportunity. Thanks to Aria and Michael and to Seth. 
About this time last year, we were here on a panel discussing several related topics, among them information technologies and their role in contributing to the current cultural and political crisis. In the background looms the great question of how and if it is possible to harness these online spaces towards a progressive vision of the future. The genesis for today's event began with a self-published artist book called Politogram in the Post Left, which I put online uh, just about a year ago. So what is Politogram? Politogram is a portmanteau for political Instagram, and this is a community of mostly Gen Z teens that inject kind of fringe meme ideas into mainstream politics. In that research, I was looking for an online left that could compete with the social media impact of the alt-right. I didn't find it, but I did find um, or happily stumbled upon this community, this thriving uh, meme community called Politogram. Politogram in the post-left is the mini-ethnography of a mimetic subculture which emerged in the wake of the 2016 election. The abrupt rise of anti-tech radicalism, green anarchy, anarcho-primitivism, or the post-left by any other name, encapsulated the mood of radical young people at the time. Since its publications, the communities outlined in my research have codified into three distinct but overlapping groups, broadly construed as left-com, which stands for left communism, the ultra-left, and UAC, which stands for Unconditional Accelerationism, and I'm sure we'll define these terms later and probably muddy them as well. Themes of communization and a deep pessimism for climate change are ubiquitous. Today's politogram is vastly different from the shitposting antics of early 2016. As the influence of these spaces has long since spilled over into the real world, today's memers are now self-educated, fully politicized, and with few traces of irony. The last few years of social media has been the radicalization event for a generation of young people, some of which are here with us today. Now, several years into this research, my general way of theorizing these new online political spaces has become that after Fukuyama's end of history, after Thatcher's There Is No Alternative, where liberal democracy is assured to be the only path forward, today's downwardly mobile young people faced with the brunt of this imminent social, political, economic, and climate crisis now gather in these spaces to workshop some vision of a path forward. Not surprisingly, these Gen Z speculations on the future come out rather grim and far to the left, right, up, down, and sideways. Today, it feels nearly impossible to imagine a better future. Climate catastrophe seems to be the rapidly approaching historical bookend to global capitalism. The contradictions of the current order have become too transparent to hide, and the stakes have become too high to ignore. To resolve our political crisis, there will necessarily be some vast expansion of the Overton window, and these online spaces will undoubtedly play a part in it. Today, we have gathered several representatives from Politogram, and we'd like to give them a platform to speculate about the near future and to express some of their hopes and concerns. And now I'll hand it off to our participants. We're going to do a series of kind of quick um, micro lectures. We'll have a roundtable conversation, and then we'll open it up to audience questions towards the end. Since I was 11 or 12, I've drifted around a lot of leftists, or at least leftists in name ideologies, Hojism, Trotskyism, anarcho-communism, egoism, and most recently, left communism and ultra-leftism. I try to avoid these sort of descriptors now and have for the past year or two, uh, but the ones I begrudgingly and rarely use nowadays are anarchists, uh, leftists with a lot of reservations, and on even more uncommon occasions, radical environmentalists. For the sake of clarity, most probably call me something like a green anarchist, and I'll put up with that for now. We're at a pivotal few decades in our history. Whatever may happen in the next however many years, it will not take on the mood of something truly revolutionary or entirely new, because the ways in which we interpret these events is contingent on the ways we are taught to think about them. 
no matter how revolutionary our notions may be, they're relying on the same fundamental building blocks. And two examples I'm going to be using throughout this uh, is signage and architecture. Most leftists tend to make a distinction between an act that is revolutionary and an act that is counter-revolutionary. Yet, under the analysis I'm sort of beginning to lay forth, no act can be truly revolutionary as it operates under and by the same logic as a more overtly consumerist or capitalist or statist or whatever uh, act. To write anti-capitalist literature and to write some work of Austrian economics is to write all the same. It is a form of communication we are bound to that traps us in a history that seems mundane when experienced and by which we are damned to feel like nothing is getting done. I think one of the main things that stoked this fire is the genesis of the internet. Whenever I go online, as if there's ever a moment in which I'm offline, I'm immediately bombarded with a wealth of information. Literally right now, we can read about some relatively obscure political theory, like Deleuze's connection to cybernetics or Revolian fascism, or something as simple and mundane as the largest lobster ever caught or the population and demographics of Spencer, Iowa. The internet has sped up this cultural logic. The amount of happenings we know of is nearly unending, international, national, and local. I can read the news from Fairbanks, Alaska, here in the Lower East Side. All this has led to a desensitization to the news. Think of how we all reacted whenever Trump was initially campaigning or just got elected and he tweeted out something deemed inappropriate. It was outrage, of course, because it rocked what was expected of a candidate or major politician to the core. It was upsetting in his relative nonconformity. And predictably, that energized a sector of the electorate that was looking for something that was seemingly different, something which was more outspoken and virulent. Two or three years later, and how to react now? He's been assimilated into the daily machine and news cycle. He tweets something that we see as outrageous of regularity, seemingly at least once a week. We become largely immune to it because of the wealth of incidents it brings about. And of course, that surprises nearly no one. Can we not also see the same process happening outside of politics, though, or at least the overtly political? Do you remember how exciting it was when you first got Twitter, Instagram, and your friends would post or comment on your posts? If you're anything like me, it was a pretty decent serotonin rush to be interacting with one of your friends on a new frontier. As time goes on, though, we become less excited, more used to its interaction, and it blends into daily life as well. The same exact phenomena is being reproduced all around us, constantly, without end. This process can't be avoided by merely changing the hands that the means of production are in, abolishing work and commodity production, thinning out class, and destroying the state. Even when you do that, normalcy exists. The everyday life and the usual exists. The problem is economic, but not merely so. It is a grave we dug for ourselves quite a long time ago. Even getting rid of commodity production or the state means that there exists that form of being in which commodity production and the state are present. It will haunt in as much as the same way that the specter of communism haunts now. The only option I see as a way out is the abolition of symbolic thought. Once you begin to conceptualize all the possibilities politically, economically, socially, we have made the ideas stuck and suspended in time. But, of course, abolition of symbolic thought is impossible because you'd have to think symbolically to abolish symbolic thought. So are we at the end of history? Yes, of course. We have locked ourselves into a groove we don't want to get out of. And to use George Bataille's conception of economy, our future has become an excess. An excess is expendable and to spend it as a luxury. I previously brought this point up to more, uh, I guess, usual leftists, and they have often accused me of odd, vaguely spiritualistic distractions from the material issues that press. Let me make myself clear. I am targeting the blind idealism of things like the Invisible Committee or the New Egoists or any sort of flavor of insurrectionists who advocate for a total overhaul revolution. It is undeniably good to abolish commodity production in a sense, even if the idea persists. It is better to be haunted by it than have it as a physical form. Yet it will always be there in that sense. And also, I just want to add this on, it also goes to show that no matter what the event, it will never feel historical as it must be communicated via the same means. Once we began to think in images, we paved our road. No matter the politics or economy, there will always be that thought for theories inescapable, no matter how we may claw at the door. Salutations, fellow kids. We seem to be obsessed with differences between the generations. 
And uh, we consider the various terms we dream up for said generations as critically important to our political analyses. Words like uh, boomer and millennial have become quite ubiquitous in our everyday language and are uttered mostly with a level of derision and resentment. The next generational category that everyone seems to be simultaneously obsessed with and confused by, whether one is a member of it themselves or not, is uh, the Zoomer, Generation Z, to be a little less colloquial. While I'm not in the least bit interested in the vague cliches or stereotypes ascribed to my generation, or even this method of classifying a population in the first place by uh, marketing teams and political analysts, I still consider it important to at least start my brief account of the present state of things and the future with the reluctant establishment of an axiomatic presupposition that in general, the Zoomers display a kind of political malaise that is qualitatively at least totally unique and unprecedented. Since the dissolution of the Soviet Union, uh, the publishing of Francis Fukuyama's infamous book, End of History and the Last Man. I don't know if you've heard of Francis Fukuyama. Uh, if you haven't, you aren't missing much. Um, <laughs> uh, and the period of supposed economic prosperity of the Clinton era, our global social situation has looked, frankly, like anything but Hegel's end of history and the prevailing method of capital management and governance in the West, often referred to as neoliberalism, has looked like anything but the political and economic actualization of Hegel's absolute idea. Even Fukuyama himself, actually, <laughs> has admitted recently that we may still be at some kind of historical crossroad. The 21st century has had a small number of magnitudinous and globally felt events that make this self-evident. On September 11th, 2001, in the very city in which I now both reside and publicly speak these words, a dreadful atrocity was committed that shook the very center, literally, of the Western capitalist world and made it look arguably even more vulnerable than it did during the most contentious moments of the Cold War. In uh, 2008, our bankers and investors, again, right around these parts, uh, caused millions of ordinary families to lose their homes and livelihoods through their impenetrably silly and careless financial games, and then, you know, kept themselves afloat with taxpayer money. And on August 12th, 2017, in my little hometown, right before my very eyes, hordes of white supremacists took to the streets, screamed racially charged chants at locals and students, violently beat up two, probably more, of my former classmates. One of them actually was a friend of mine. And even killed a woman in Charlottesville. These events were all devastating and disheartening in their own right. But what really characterizes the series of dents being made in our collective confidence in the existing system is the unspoken but nonetheless very present acceptance among people, especially the, the Zoomers, that the worst is yet to come. The rise of racist populism globally, the increasingly alienating and dystopian methods of worker control and surveillance that continue to be devised by Silicon Valley, and of course, you know, the elephant in the room, the uh, existential threat, ecological crisis, are very real and frequently cited examples of what we are psychologically bracing ourselves for. In short, the Zoomers know that the next 25 years are going to be rough.
It is all well and good to complain about symptoms, but no trip to the doctor can be called complete without a diagnosis and a prescription. While it would be totally inappropriate for me to turn this particular little thing here into a rabble-rousing call for revolution, I will nevertheless attempt to present possible changes that I would like to see in the next 25 years, as that was um, the prompt for this whole affair, or at least one of them. I won't ask for much. My uh, shamelessly Zoomerish pessimism makes itself very known here. But here, here goes. First, in these confusing times, I would urge everyone, especially people around my age, to start trying to view politics as a phenomenon that can exist and, in fact, always has existed outside of the, the next electoral race, outside of CNN and Fox News, outside of the drab and intimidating concrete structures of Washington, D.C. A willingness to view our present situation historically and to make ordinary people, aka the working class, a focal point of analysis is critical to understanding the world in a practical way. And as much as people may scoff at this, a serious consideration of the idea that the epoch of capitalism, there's the word, is necessarily either a historically transitory system or a historically lethal expression of a human death drive is becoming increasingly hard to escape. No reason to beat around the bush here. A globally resurgent communism might be the species' only hope of getting out of the next 25 years in one piece. As Luxembourg stated in her Junius pamphlet, bourgeois society stands at a crossroads, either transition to socialism or regression into barbarism. This is equally true today as capitalism presents humanity with an increasingly pressing question. Whether or not to be dragged into that infernal abyss, it is only through a necessary struggle in which the working class exercises against the ruling class that humanity could destroy the thing which is currently driving its destruction. This choice is being made in front of our eyes. Now, for my uh, fellow kids, to whom I say greetings and salutations, to the lonely and radical high schooler online posting memes, proudly proclaiming that you will not work in a factory because it is a cooperative venture, writing essays about the abolition of every social phenomenon that you can possibly dream up of, while still remaining so ironically caught in the ecstasy of digital communication as described by Jean Baudrillard. I understand you and I support you to a degree and I want nothing more than to unequivocally say Godspeed and good luck to you. But I urge you to remember that behind every feature of human society you may, regardless of the justifiability, wish to eliminate, ultimately there is still just nature and humans. To roughly quote a lyric from my favorite song by The Smiths, Cemetery Gates, which is itself derivative of a 1942 play, The Man Who Came to Dinner, they are humans with loves and hates and passions just like yours. Warily keep these humans, and humanity in general, in your mind when you are tempted by anti-humanistic, whether this is an intentional sentiment or not, Radicalism merely for the sake of radicalism and not for the sake of a real commitment to human emancipation. This is, of course, not to say that we should vaguely forgive anyone, especially not the most, quote-unquote, deplorable actors in our society and in history. But in general, a rejection of a basic humanistic character to your analysis ultimately only exacerbates an existing alienation that is 
ironically not recognized in the first place by, theoretically, by the detractors of humanism. Your place in the struggle as a human subject is valid. Marx famously once said, men make history, but they do not do so as they please. The youth of today might be hopeless and surly as ever in its various justified neuroses about the future, but perhaps as the capitalist edifice continues in its decadent decline and begins to show itself more and more as something suited to end up in a dreadful relic of the past, today's young people will be the ones forced to make history in a totally new and unseen way, whether they like it or not. Maybe the internet, a product of the existing social order, a place we spend so much time on now, will become more than a place for stupid, subversive, subversive memes. Perhaps it will be the medium through which the seeds of the transcendence of the very social order from whence it was born will be planted. Mm -hmm. You never know. One thing's for sure though, one day, we will be the ones saying, salutations. How do you do, fellow kids? I'll preface it by saying, this is a shameless rabble-rousing call for revolution. <laughs> Capitalism is entirely incompatible with ecological sustainability. The rise of the capitalist mode of production was made possible through a brutal process of global colonization and ecological devastation, which continues to this day. This process has landed us in the middle of the largest mass extinction in 60 million years. And now the proletariat, that is the working class, must overthrow the ruling class to create a classless society to prevent capital from devouring all life. Capital doesn't only destroy life by burning rainforests and poisoning water, or through colonial genocide, but also squeezes creative pleasure and passion from production. I believe that civilization, which I define as society characterized by a specialization of labor, a division into social classes, and the presence of a centralized state power, can be understood as the generalization of alienating labor. In human societies predating the first civilizations, there was no need for a state or specialization of labor because they would produce what they needed to survive with materials directly from the natural environment around them by hunting and gathering and free association with those they produced with, uh, traveling in small familial bands. It's only with the rise of civilization, initially in the form of city-states ruled by priest kings and fed by masses of enslaved farmers, that productive labor took on a generally alienating character. Capitalist society has totalized and generalized alienation. The proletarians are entirely separated from the products of their labor and from the means of production. I believe it's only because we are alienated from our world and ourselves that we are able to bring ourselves as a society to destroy the natural world with impunity. The proletarians can only end their alienation by seizing control of the means of production and abolishing class society, establishing themselves as the subjects in control of the world rather than objects. That process means revolution, and I believe that's the only way forward for humanity. The necessity of proletarian revolution is made especially clear by the current climate crisis and the widening gap between the rich and the poor. Droughts and extreme weather linked to climate change have already put millions around the globe at risk of hunger, and millions have been displaced. As desertification intensifies and the climate worsens in the coming decades, 
there's going to be a migrant crisis that makes the current disaster look like child's play. Those living in the poorest nations near the equator are going to be the most heavily affected initially. The capitalist mode of production is incapable of dealing with this coming crisis. Right now, enough food is produced on the planet to feed 12 billion people. But out of the 7.7 billion people in the world today, 815 million are chronically undernourished. When the planet's capacity for food production drastically and rapidly falls, the super rich are not going to provide food for those who need it, and huge numbers of people will die. If the migrants fleeing the most devastated nations aren't incarcerated in concentration camps, as I'm sure many will be, they will join the growing ranks of proletarians in first world nations who have no access to the social safety net of old or stable job opportunities. As conditions worsen, the capitalist class will, through its media and state, increasingly blame the poor conditions on the marginalized. Climate change will be attributed to the working class being wasteful or foreigners having too many children, and this will be used as justification for policies which will cut down on the living standards of the people and increase the criminalization of the marginalized. Prison populations will swell and law enforcement will become more militarized than it already is, including more surveillance of the internet. The future for capitalism, if there will be a future for it at all, is eco-fascism. It's not a question of if this will lead to genocide, but when. A crisis is looming. Just as capitalism is destroying the earth, it is making it increasingly difficult for the proletarians whose labor it relies on to reproduce themselves through their work. This makes the imperative of finding a new way of life ever more pressing. Increasingly, the norm for young people is to be underemployed or precariously employed, and the working day on average is getting longer while pay isn't rising. Depression and anxiety are more common in the US and UK than ever, especially among young people. Mental illness is portrayed by society as being caused by individual psychological issues rather than social conditions, but it isn't only that. It's a social problem arising from the social conditions of present society, which young people are finding increasingly isolating and intolerable. As oil prices rise, the bourgeoisie will begin to realize that they can't keep on using oil to fuel their economy, and they will turn to other means, including so-called green energy. I think it's vital to point out that a Green New Deal can't make capitalism ecologically sustainable. To produce enough solar panels and wind turbines to reach the goals set out by Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez to meet the current energy demand, it would be necessary to increase the mining of rare earth metals 12 times over. Already this mining poisons water sources, accelerates deforestation, fuels civil war in Congo, and reduces whole areas to toxic wastes. Instead of maintaining our current energy use and inevitably increasing it to fuel the endless expansion needed by the capitalist economy, what the earth needs and what all the people who live in the areas that will be devastated need is a reduction of energy use. This will only be made possible if the people take the means of production under their own conscious control rather than producing ever greater and greater exchange values. The way to counter the division and xenophobia which the ruling class always have and most definitely will use to weaken the fighting strength of the workers is with solidarity. The white proletariat in the United States must recognize that their interests are aligned with those of the racially marginalized and act in cooperation with them 
to destroy the settler colonial state in which we live. The revolutionary movement must overcome racial, gendered, and sexual oppression that divides the proletariat if it is to win. And in the process of winning, it will destroy gendered and racial categorization forever, as it will do away with all the alienating roles of civilized society, as it must. The task before us won't be an easy one. There's a prevailing sense that what we're living now can't go on, and at the same time that this society is immortal. As soon as the people refuse to continue to work and instead move to sabotage or take over the productive forces of society, the military powers of the capitalists will be significantly reduced and immobilized. The greatest weakness of the proletariat is that the people don't know their own strength. But as soon as they begin to act for themselves collectively, they will begin to feel that their own social power knows no limits. Even now in the US, people under 30 respond more positively to the word socialism than they do to capitalism, but most are enamored with reformist efforts that don't transcend the barriers of present society. As the climate disaster accelerates, the oppressed can build solidarity, increase their own chances of survival, and simultaneously become more experienced in the use of their own autonomous power through the creation of networks of mutual aid. Collective networks for harm reduction to address food insecurity and provide medical assistance will hopefully be accompanied by the growth of autonomous organizations for the development and synthesization of revolutionary theory, for political mobilization, the dissemination of propaganda, and for collective self-defense. This will certainly not go ignored by the ruling class and will be met with repression and attempts at recuperation. The proletariat will have to be wary and refuse any compromise with their oppressors. In their struggle to support one another in opposition to the ruling order and to resist repression, the proletarians will become ever more aware of their own strength and that anything short of taking over the world to destroy civilization would amount to total defeat. I hope that they will succeed at that task because that's the only way our generation will have a future full of life. Thank you all so much for putting so much time and effort into such thoughtful and insightful talks. Um, I think I probably speak for mostly everyone, I, probably everyone in the room, that when I was a teenager, this isn't how I talked about politics. Uh, and I think, I think that says something about the times that we're, we're living in. In looking at these online spaces, I've found that it's usually easier to explain things from the outside. So if we take a kind of bird's eye view at the talks we listened to today, when we, we asked um, young people to write what they expect to happen in the next 25 years, nobody contributed a piece of short fiction. Most everyone felt the need to explain how capitalism is driving the climate crisis, which is pushing us to the, the brink of a potentially extinction level event. There was... Um, a very in insightful, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but from uh, our, our conversation last night, you said something to the effect of, there's maybe not much point in writing a fiction about the bad version of the future because we're already in it. <laughs> uh, and I think that, that really stuck with me. As we heard people talk today, I see a few influences from the post-left, talking about the abolition of uh, symbolic thought, symbolic culture, pre-capitalist hierarchies, labor specialization, priest kings was maybe an earlier draft. But the, the big summary is that the hierarchies 
that uh, young people are concerned with are not purely the type of um, capitalism that maybe my generation was brought up to to understand. So I wanted to just kind of pitch a few kind of prompts and uh, questions to to the group. I'll read this intro here and then we'll kind of we'll go through it and we'll just see how the conversation develops. But as observed from the outside, the popular themes that circulate among young political communities tell us something about the anxieties and hopes of the younger generation. For example, we don't see any memes about Edward Bernstein or evolutionary socialism. Instead, we see Amadeo Bordiga and Gilles Dove. Hastily summarized, communization theory argues that communism is not a process. Uh, the seed of the new society already exists within the current social order, and this transformation is instantaneous and in mass. And given the shrinking runway within which we will lock in irreversible climate catastrophe, uh, they just might be right. <laughs> so I wanted to uh, first pitch to the group, if you would tell us just broadly, if uh, Bordiga is a figure, what is it that appeals to you about his theory? Or what is it that you feel is especially relevant now as opposed to decades prior? Well, I think, first of all, it's, it's important not to uh, view these people as like, because I, I mean, the mistake is when people see people like me, like reading, let's, let's say Amadeo Bordiga, they're like, yo, you're like looking at, looking at him and you're taking him as this like programmatic, um, you know, set of, he's writing this programmatic set of policies and this little like a dead white dude from the 20th century when really the, the reason that we, uh, that I find him so compelling is simply that he is a very important figure in the workers movement, the global workers movement. I mean, he's very, he was very involved and um, I mean, it's just like theoretic, like very, how do I put this? Like just sort of elaboration on existing theoretical concepts, you know, things like that. Like, I mean, do, do you know the whole, I don't wanna like go on a whole like spiel right now about like his, the whole like <laughs> historical, but essentially like he was in the, the uh, so there was the, the Italian communist party, right? And like he was in the sort of ultra left faction within it right and he saw the opportunism of like the the common turn right he was technically for a time he was like still allowed to go to like common turn conferences and stuff but essentially the part the italian communist party was run by like togliati and gramsci basically and they were like yeah um we're gonna like side with the soviet project even after its degeneration which um Bordiga observed, but other people observed too, like from coming to conclusions about the degeneration of the first revolutionary wave in the 20s and then in Russia, right? Bordiga is the only guy, or not the, the more, most sort of theoretically pro prolific writer from, you know, who like kind of comes like a little bit after that, right? Who's, who still is like willing to look at that whole thing and, and say like, yeah, this is, this is opportunism and I'm not going to put myself on the side of the common turn. And I'm not going, I'm going to, um, even, even after like Togliati and Gramsci are gonna like kick me out of the party and like things like that. And it's, it's less of a like, yeah, Bordigo is like this, he's a really good writer and everything. It's, it really, it's just like his mm. situation mm -hmm. in history. Can I ask a, um, I mean, tell me if this is an unfair characterization, but like uh, a figure like Gramsci, the, the idea of capturing cultural hegemony this seems like a kind of less appealing idea now, and I'm kind of imagining that's because 
we have the kind of largest transnational corporations, which are at least rhetorically on board with a progressive agenda, yet are the driving forces uh, behind global capitalism. So, I, I mean, I, I think kind of taking the, the bird's eye view that it's curious how certain figures kind of disappear from the landscape, but would otherwise be part of the canon, or at least were, were canon for, for my generation. Um, Maybe I was, I was going to ask uh, about uh, Jill's Doguet, yeah. which is, I think, maybe in the last, uh, I don't know, year or so. I mean, you all would know um, better, than, better than I would as an observer. But when the interest in his work started to take off? I definitely think, um, I don't know, uh, I guess you're probably pronouncing it right. I don't know how to pronounce his last I've name. I've Dov and Doguet. Like, Dov. Dov. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Um, that's, that's the thing, when you, when you see everything written on the internet, none of us actually know how to pronounce the names. <laughs> Anyways, uh, Dove, Dove, whatever. Um, he's a French communist uh, writer, um, and he's probably the most famous theorist of this idea of communization, uh, which is uh, the idea of that the communist revolution, to be communist and to really do away with capitalist relations, must necessarily reject capitalist relations from the beginning of their revolutionary activity. So I guess to say that in a less complicated way would be communists of the past, uh, like Lenin, would say that once the workers seize control, they have to take up management of the factories, continue producing for themselves, advance the productive forces or whatever in a collectively managed fashion. But communizers, People who follow communization theory, uh, on the other hand, would reject that idea of a programmatic revolution that doesn't do away with work. So I say work not as in meaning all productive activity or labor, uh, but it's alienating or forced labor, uh, like work that's coerced out of us by the economy, wage labor. The revolution has to do away with that from the beginning. The workers have to be acting for themselves to be able to meet their own needs for themselves uh, without still being subservient to some uh, overarching economy. Uh, and I guess to answer your actual question, I think it was maybe like two years ago that more people started hmm. reading about that. I, I, think, well, I, I, think, I think that lines up because I guess, so it's been, it's been a long time now and the kind of politogram for lack of a better term um, these communities are, are really qualitatively different from when I first started looking at it because it was a space kind of like a sandbox for politics or people would kind of debate in the common threads and there was this friendly banter and there was this real crossover between different communities. And what was really kind of, I think, transformative and, and so interesting about it is that as my kind of adult and professional life and, and the, our news feeds on social media kind of codified into these factions or filter bubbles that were very separate. At that moment, politogram, people were kind of flowing between different things. And you could really see someone's mind be changed in a comment thread. Uh, and, and then they would update their account accordingly and be like, well, I'm thinking now about these ideas. And you'd kind of watch people's um, philosophical, ideological evolution. And then, I mean, I think, I think at the beginning, the kind of anti-tech radicalism that I saw which really kind of had the viral peak after the, the 2016 election, it felt kind of like a, this kind of reactionary withdrawal from kind of the prevalence of social media. Um, the experience of 2016 on social media 
did everyone some psychological trauma that we're still in the process of recovering from. But what was recuperated from that anti-tech stuff was this kind of reaching back further than just the history of capitalism for all forms of social hierarchy and, and um, oppression. But there was a friend of ours who is not here today, but is a collaborator on one of the texts, conducted a kind of self-administered census. So this is over a period of reaching back a year. It was a question in an Instagram story. Would you describe your politics as leftcom? And a few months apart, it was 25%, 50%, and then 75%, which I, I, think, I think sounds pretty pretty accurate. And I think that's a, a, a net positive from some of the like really kind of like deep green nihilistic stuff. Um, and part of this kind of like commitment to theory and reading the kind of casual posters have slowly been weaned out. And so the people who are still part of it have developed clearly like kind of rigorous understandings of these ideas. Anar was a collaborator, or I'm not sure how to, maybe you could describe your work on the Gravel campaign or, or what your role was in that. Um, I'm, I'm going to go ahead and hope it's okay for me to curse. I'm going to go ahead and say it was a shit show and a <laughs> glorious one at that. Um, so f I assume most people in here are at least uh, marginally aware of a lot of left-wing happenings or at least moderately left happenings. And so you probably heard about the campaign of Mike Gravel, who was the former senator from Alaska during the uh, late 60s, or the Pentagon Papers and the congressional record. And um, he ran for president pretty much coaxed into it by two, uh, two Columbia undergrads who were like 17 and 18, I believe, who really wanted him to run. And um, so his platform was incredibly far left given electoral politics. Given my taste, it was pretty far right. But, but uh, ultimately, uh, sorry to the other ones on this panel, but I'm not allergic to uh, electoral politics in all its forms. Uh, so I sort of got involved as an organizer after some of my friends coaxed me into it. And it was interesting because it was really a big congregation of a lot of different very very young leftists but it was outside of a politogram sphere it wasn't really people who were involved in social media activism like politogram or you know like these discord or twitter communities it was people who were pretty much like democratic socialists who weren't really that far left but they had like leftists i guess to use a very vague word values mm -hmm. and but, and they were actually trying to cause change, you know, uh, like I believe you said, Nick, sort of like the symptoms. They're trying to change the symptom, which of course has its issues. We can't all be theoretically perfect, like me, of course, I'm the only smart person in existence. <laughs> but but, uh, but it, was, it was something I'd do again. I don't regret it. Um, I'm sad we couldn't get on the debate stage. We got robbed of that. DNC said 65,000 donors. We got that, didn't let us on. But, um, and where's the surprise in that? But Ultimately, I'd say it was a really good experience. And I'd say it was enriching in a different way because it opened me up more to the actual activist sphere because I was pretty anti-activism. I thought it was pretty much just like a liberal collaboration, which I think most of it still is. But I think that there are genuine routes we can take in which there are options for like radicalism, for the lack of a better word. Uh, it's just you have to be very careful, and I think we can take actually a lot from communization theory in this, in which it has to be radical from the beginning and from the ground up, and that seed already has to be planted. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess the um, refraining from activism is uh, in some ways a self-fulfilling prophecy that you, uh, <laughs> you know, lock in the dystopia. But I want to just kind of float a few general questions. Of, this feels kind of like ancient history by now, but so in 2017, 
maybe parts of 2016, Max Stirner was similar to uh, Pepe the Frog, like potentially a mascot for the left, that there was this a lot of confusion about what that symbol meant, and it kind of had this affective uh, shitposting quality. Does anyone have any kind of insights of what the appeal of Stirner was at the time? Are you still interested in his work? The, the first line in my Instagram bio is right. egoist communist. Calling myself an egoist is based in the ideas of Max Stirner. Max Stirner, he was this German philosopher dude. He's pretty famous for rejecting like all morality or most morality, any morality at least that doesn't come directly from you, created for yourself to suit your own uh, purposes, I guess. I think the appeal of Max Stirner to the left that I'm not going to try to explain all his ideas, but I think it'll sort of become clear. As there, I, I still struggle with this. So <laughs> understandable. Uh, so I think his, his ideas are very much that our activity has to come from ourselves, for ourselves, in that if we're trying to create some sort of communist revolution out of a moral imperative or just because people tell us this is what's right, uh, we're not actually going to end up um, really doing that. The idea of egoist communism is that if we're having a communist revolution, the people engaging it would have to be engaging in it because it's actually interesting to them, because they actually see the real potential for the liberation of themselves in that revolution. It's not an act of self-sacrifice as much as self-realization. And that, I think, appeals to a lot of young communists in the sense that it contrasts with the sort of older communist Mm -hmm. idea of we create it for moral reasons or you have to, you know, be a good worker. But it, it more, it's conducive to the idea of rejecting work entirely. I see it very much as compatible with the idea of communization. Yeah, I, I, I guess from my position, um, I saw that the, the interest in Stirner ran kind of directly counter to the kind of, at the time, kind of a progressive liberal moral claim or, or moral uh, plea vote to uh, pay more taxes because it is the morally right thing to do. And so from Stirner's position, if you could take morality off of the table, you would have to recognize your own individual self-interest. Potentially that is aligned with class. His kind of understanding of class is is very difficult. We don't need to relitigate all of of Stirner, but it's kind of like a postmodernism before postmodernism. We we won't... um, whack the hornet's nest of uh, <laughs> Sternerism uh, <laughs> before we get mired in uh, endless debate. I wanted to ask, you mentioned a Zoomer malaise in your text, mm-hmm. and I was wondering if you could kind of expand on that. What is the, what is the kind of feeling of that malaise? What, what are some of the causes of it? Well, I mean, to be perfectly honest, I don't entirely like love the whole like using generational categories as a way to you know in our political analyses i think it's i mean there there's also there's also a millennial malaise right in my uh speech i think i said the zoomer version is qualitatively different and i made i made that clear it's not quantitatively different because right you have i mean a lot of if you talk to a lot of millennials who actually like they they weren't like like eight years old in 2008 like they were a little older than that (laughs) but the uh, Zoomer one is like, ultimately, this is sort of a fringe thing. But in general, if you talk to people around my age, they're going to, th- there's a sort of like tacit acceptance. There's 
something like insane is going to happen like in our lifetimes, <laughs> like whether it's the ecological crisis, whether it's I have a friend who's currently writing a, a thing where he's making the contention that the next great economic crisis per se is going to be an oil bubble, right? Like, and, and it, uh, it's, that's something that could be that. It's just, there. I, I said that it's like a sort of like, there's just a very, um, and maybe this, maybe it is like a little bit doom and gloom, but there, there's just a sort of, even among the people who don't, who aren't like me and like just go online and read like, read stuff all day. You know, there's a sort, there is a sort of, uh, in our collective consciousness, a, a worry that like something's down the road, like it's not gonna, it's, I mean, like even in, in uh, Virginia where I'm from, there are towns where people are like wading through water to get to work. <laughs> things like, just little things like that. I said like there's, it's it's less of a, a state of despair, more of a, I don't know if you've ever, I, there's some horror movies like this where it's like, they're not very jump scary. And like, even most of the film doesn't even have you know, super like visceral imagery, but like, there's just this sort of dismal, like clammy, like expectation throughout the, throughout the film. Like, you know, something's going to happen. You know what I mean? And it's sort of, I would, I would compare it to that. The way that I try to describe or understand these things is like when, when I was in middle school and we talk about uh, climate change, it was a problem on the horizon, but the best people are on it. Uh, we're going to have some tech fixes. This will be taken care of. And now, None of you are in middle school anymore, but uh, the teacher who might be about my age or a little bit older has to kind of tell you, well, very likely by the time that you're my age, this will be locked in and we're going to have to make massive consumption cuts and reduction in quality of life. And seemingly that those are the, um, you know, hard, hard decisions in the near future. You wanted to jump in on one thing and then I think we'll open it up to questions from the audience, but please um, go ahead. I, I just wanted to, um, building off of that, I think, and I come from a relatively small town in Tennessee, and even at my high school, which has about 1,500 kids, which is like probably like 15th of our population, I have met so many kids who literally say, and this is something you'll be interested in, Joshua, yang yang, because we're going to die anyway, so might as well get $1,000 while doing it. Oh, <laughs> and that is verbatim <laughs> something one of my friends told me. This is an exaggeration. This is literally, we've ex like so many of us have accepted that we're going to like, in five decades from now, we'll be in the middle of an even worse mass extinction event. We'll have mass human die-offs. We'll have even worse desertification. And really, I'm tended, I tend to agree with them. Not the Yang Gang stuff, but the fact that even if we abolish capitalism tomorrow, we'd, we'd still probably be looking like at least a two degree Celsius warming in the next few, like five, six decades in the face. At most, but the lead climatologist, one of the major organizations, has predicted something as much as five. And and what that means is just a highlight reel death, pretty much lots and lots of death for us, for every single animal, for um, for just like the land in general. And I don't really know how we can combat that. Like this is something, this is what led me to being much more pessimistic in my analysis is actually looking at it because NGOs are still babbling about sort of, you know, stopping two degrees Celsius in the next like few years with policy changes. Is that really anything that's even plausible? Like we have to really, be looking at the like what's really coming out and not just being fed it by some uh you know uh, liberal think tank which we think is reliable on the issue of climate when really the actual statistics we're getting are much much worse well these are the stakes that i think motivate people to um embrace what were in previous decades radical ideas 
why don't we open up questions to the audience? I think we're going to do kind of have three people maybe give their questions, two or three, and then we'll just kind of pitch it to the panel to, to be able to respond. Hi. Um, I was just wondering what uh, school is like for you guys, like especially like <laughs> interacting with like a history teacher or like, I don't know, civics, whatever, like, how does that go? Um, yeah, this is sort of a follow-up on that. Um, for, like, how much time is spent thinking about labor and the future, I'm really curious as to how each of you see, like, what you imagine, like, your careers could be um, or what job you would have, assuming that there are jobs for you. <laughs> Um, thanks. That was a really enjoyable uh, set of talks. Um, what are what are you guys' thoughts on growth versus degrowth tied into your uh, political vision? Well, th I mean, those are some uh, some big topics. I, you guys want to <laughs> jump? Maybe maybe school and jobs are, are kind of tied in together. Okay, uh, so you can you can also yeah. totally pass on a topic if you don't want to uh, you know ha have to think about it or. <laughs> um, I think in schools, uh, there's an, a lot of apathy just towards what we're learning, what we're taught, like mostly everything, because I think a lot of kids think that, and I think rightfully so, actually, you know, their grades are not going to matter so much because we're going to die, um, or alternatively, that all that really matters is the number of the grade rather than anything they're learning uh, because, you know, you just want to get to the most, like, high economic position to hope you can survive. And uh, when it comes to, like, jobs, uh, I think that is also something that makes education feel almost useless in that even with, like, a degree, so many people can't find, like, a job that will pay them enough to get by. And as the climate disaster looms, I guess, uh, personally, I can't see myself, I mean, holding a job in capitalist society sounds almost narcissistic and ridiculous because it's like, I, we have to get out there and deal with climate change and I'm not going to be able to do that uh, professionally. We need autonomous organization and movement of the people um, outside of professional categories. Uh, and I hope that that would become generalized, or I think that that is what a revolution would do in the sense that it would abolish like a professional role for everyone. Uh, we would just be people doing things. And I think that would free us up to be people doing the things that we need to respond to the coming disaster. Uh, so like question about like school, like for me, is it, what was the, it was like, how is school for? <laughs> well, I mean, in high school, I like, it was, I like, just didn't really, I, I've never liked school. So I like, I just don't, 
my whole thing with that was always just like just get stuff done or not get stuff done and get out and just like you know i'm in a university right now and it really is like the same sort of same sort of deal basically i mean generally like i'm in a political science political theory kind of course and honestly like i mean there, there was one like we had to write a paper about althusser who i uh full disclosure i really do not like at all <laughs> and um I that like in that case, yeah, I did actually write a very angry paper. I referred to him as the OJ of critical theory. Um, and uh, but like just in general, though, I tried just generally like I I try to keep my because I just don't I, I mean I I don't even know if I want to continue with college even like I I try to just keep it away. Um, so I'm 16. I'm still in my junior year of high school and. Man, do I hate it <laughs> because once you really get into all this stuff and you get into like this like deeply pessimistic leftist theory, it's like it really is just sort of like, OK, why? Why? Why do I why do I have like work in front of me? I need to do, you know, it's like when you're younger, it's much easier to sort of apply your like morals and your ethics and like the things you think to your life. So it becomes more just like, OK, maybe I should do this because even though I don't like like the concept of homework, like I still have to do it. It's just like I don't like homework. It's a dumb concept. Why? Why do I have to bow down to like the teacher student relationship? And <laughs> so I'm still very much there. I recognize uh, it's kind of dumb. I'm probably going to regret having like all D's and C's my junior and sophomore year, if not my senior year as well. But I mean, what are you gonna do? <laughs> in terms of like history classes and stuff, that's like the one like the one class I do well in because it's just something I have like a genuine drive towards. Um, I remember actually freshman year world history, uh, we had, you know, those old 2004 Southern textbooks where it described communism as when the state owns everything, fun. And so, um, and so uh, I brought in three volumes of Capital, and I, and I read directly to it from my teacher. Not a good look. I don't recommend it. Um, <laughs> and um, so it, it doesn't matter. No one's minds are changed when you do that type of thing. It's more just like creating some like vague discourse between you and like the rest of the class or the teacher. But what does it accomplish? nil, nada, nothing. It, nothing good comes of it. If anything, everyone's just like, who's that pretentious asshole? <laughs> and are they wrong? But in terms of like careers, I mean, what do I have? Like I get a degree in anthropology, I get a PhD, and then I like move to somewhere inland because I don't want to flood, get a job at the University of Nebraska Lincoln and like and like teach and, and, and like teach until it gets too hot and I have to move to Alaska. Like, uh, <laughs> um, I don't know. That's not a life I want to live. Is it life I'm probably going to live? Yeah. Um, <laughs> but I mean, stunning political commentary. I come from a family of, um, at least on my dad's, or kind of on my mom's side, but really on my dad's side of like academics. The last four generations have all been like sort of Oxbridge, Ivy League type, like sort of, and I just, I'm not, I don't have the, uh, the fortitude or the like, <laughs> probably not in the intellectual capacity to really do that, honestly. Whatever I do for a career is really going to have nothing to do with my, like, my whole uh, love of reading sort of radical stuff. I mean, I'm just thinking about, like, just dropping out of college even. I mean, and just doing music. Like, I just don't like school. <laughs> and then growth and degrowth. What, what even is growth and degrowth? Why don't, why don't we get some more questions then? Because they're, like, not worth 
diving. I guess that that does tell you something of like what terms are familiar in the communities or, or not. I mean, degrowth is a relatively new thing for me as well. Um, should we get another few questions? Um, yeah, thank y'all. This is this is really cool. Um, I wanted to ask, sort of in the face of a lot of like the despair and stuff that you were describing of like being in school, which I totally share with you. Like, what are your sort of like action items, things that you're like stoked on right now to do? And how do you sort of navigate that, you know, with like all the impending like dooming and catastrophes? It's like related to the career question, but more like, I guess like action oriented. And one of you, like, I think you talked about like activism and you know, how to navigate that. So like, yeah, or what are you up to now? So uh, we're in kind of an art institution, and I realize most of y'all were just dealing with, with facts and nonfiction, but I'm, I'm curious about the role of media, of art in general, what the utility is, um, and and how it could be used. Like, is it is it speculative fiction? Is it presenting a future that's not just like a cyberpunk 80s thing? Uh, is it purely propaganda, where it's, where it's just uh, supporting radical action, and it's just very on the face? Is it... Yeah, where, where, where do y'all see art or media in general kind of fitting towards, moving towards something helpful? Thanks. Um, I was listening to David Harvey's podcast yesterday, which I like, I don't know, he, he had this thing that stuck with me last night where he said like he fantasizes with other, you know, theorists in the political realm about what, what would like a left-leaning McKinsey look like Meaning, um, meaning like he was kind of pointing to like the, the real heart of neoliberal growth or like strategy is like this consulting firm that's an accounting firm that then basically goes and seeds their ideas into all these businesses who then use the strategy. And I'm wondering if, um, if you have a sort of a fantasy about some subversive way of like attacking the core of neoliberalism through like an alternative co-op or some alternative like left structure that could uh you know take the form of like a pseudo mckinsey can, can i just tack on here i got to see uh david harvey speak at left forum this year and there's a panel called uh the end of the end of history so i think it is uh, uh something topical i could go ahead and talk about sort of like the role of like media and art and stuff mm. uh, because i think recently in like the past like probably six months i've taken a lot more from just like uh straightforward list like uh fiction literature than like just pure theory, even though I do still read probably more pure theory than like fiction literature. And I really think that, um, and here's something to get the crowd going, uh, authors like Cormac McCarthy and Thomas Pynchon, I think they play like a big part in sort of how we can visualize what uh, both like in, with McCarthy, like the past and also with Pynchon, like the future. And as much as you know, in Blood Meridian, there's like this, it, it's sort of like described as turning Westerns on its head. I'm sure a lot of people in here have read it where it's just like, defying the sort of cowboy narrative we have where the cowboys went out and they conquered the West and they established these settlements and there are these like rough men who like had this like rugged intellectualism. And instead of which is like, no, they were just kind of like incredibly bad people who just sort of scalped Indians out of nihilistic habit. And also with Pynchon, it's just sort of like this like vision of a post-capitalist, but not necessarily socialist or communist, or perhaps like the highest stage of capitalism, because I don't think we're there yet. Uh, future where it's just like everything is just like rugged and dirty and war is always happening. And there's like a giant missile about to kill you always. And <laughs> so I think that 
in a lot of ways, fiction and like also just like visual art. I'm not super into visual art. I say as I'm in a museum, but um, I think there's a lot of actual theoretical, like theoretical happenings that aren't just, I think a lot of times you think about art in the way that it like, it represents a theory that already exists. When I think a lot of art is actually putting forward new theory that like we could put down and it could be something written by like Zizek or Badu or something. But uh, yeah, in terms of like actual actions I'm looking forward to, I mean, I think a lot of times a lot of leftists like to throw in these little catchphrases like to have fun is anti-capitalist. No, it is not. Like, <laughs> like people say that like like queer existence is rebellion. No, absolutely not. Like I could go out, I could go out there and like have fun with my friends. Does that mean I'm like doing something anti-capitalist? No, because I'm like going to McDonald's and like seeing like the Joker movie. Like <laughs> I'm still profoundly buying into the system. I, but I, I wanted to start off by saying that like I don't really do action that much. I just kind of goof off with a bunch of my butts. And because I really, and this is branching off of that, I don't really view a lot of action as entirely uh, effective. I still partake in it. It's kind of cool to be able to dialogue with other people who are into the same sort of things, if you will. But really, what does it accomplish usually? Not much in way of actual change. But um, it, it does sort of get this like weird structural uh, motivation going. Anybody else want to jump in on the role of art? So, okay, I, I guess because you mentioned that, the role of art. Honestly, like, to be perfectly honest with you, I know this is like, a, like an art thing and everything. Um, <laughs> and like a lot of my f friends are like art people. Like I got some friends at like FIT and everything, but I, I really, I'm not really... I mean, there are, you mentioned propaganda. A lot of like sort of... Propaganda is kind of like a dead end because it, it, it just looks so like some college student like handing out flyers that say like these slogans like cool. But like, I mean, if if there's any kind of like visual sort of medium for the, related to this sort of thing that I can talk about, maybe would you consider memes like a folk art? Maybe. Yes. yes. Like <laughs> um, <laughs> resounding. Yeah. <laughs> Me and the people that I associate with doing these kind of things, the kind of memes that were like propagating are so stupid now like it's it i mean it, it's like we use you know the like the old meme formats that like became unfunny in well i don't know around like 2014 or so probably even before that a lot of like using those again like impact font and like demotivational posters and just like writing stuff on there writing like sort of subversive little honestly it's it's a lot of yeah th there's there's that there was a good one uh, recently that went through kind of the whole community which was uh, if socialism was a beer, um, and it's like my friend started that five percent <laughs> of beer and ninety five percent foam in a cup. Yeah, and this everyone made the motivational poster of it, so the image just socialism. shrank and it became like a <laughs> my, pixel. <laughs> my friend, my friend made a, a funny, like a funny derivative of that, where it was like a, uh, it was like a backwoods, like the thing you roll up, right? One of these like cursed images type things, and it was like a picture of some dude like. He had like a little, one little backwoods in hand and inside it was literally just like a stem. He, he made, it, this didn't get as big. It was like, if socialism was a blunt. And then like, it would like go outward with the demotivational poster thing. It'd be like, socialism, blunt, and then socialism. But instead of a period of historical development, it is a drug or something. <laughs> and it, like, there was, yeah, like it's not very sophisticated. There, 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 is, there is something subversive of that, though. I won't mention the account name, but um, taking a lot of the like kind of 
like dumb shit that Prager U says <laughs> and just reiterating that to kind of highlight how transparent and how stupid it is. Like you couldn't make fun of it more than it's making fun of itself. Kind of th that power of like, although you are distributing the same image, you're doing it in a context where you're making fun of it, you are kind of like taking the meaning away from, from them. You're potentially undermining their project mm -hmm. because if people begin to see PragerU in the context of like left-wing people shit posting about it, like this is dumb, then when they find PragerU, they are a little bit inoculated to the propaganda they're pushing potentially. I mean, how can you see like a graph that PragerU posts where it literally just says like, art quality and time and then just goes down oh, with, with absolutely no units to like measure yeah, it yeah. or like any art, no, you see art reduced art reduced to personal expression <laughs> yeah. 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 It's, we could go back and forth on memes all day but i mean just like oh uh, wow really like just good job we can get a round of applause for prager you <laughs> i could say something about art as well i suppose so I don't know how much you guys know about the probably varies, but uh, there's a group of communists in the 60s called the Situationist International. And they had this idea of the spectacle, which is the total project, basically, of capitalist society in the modern era, which is this ever prevailing image of prosperity. The project of our economy is primarily reproducing the image of prosperity rather than actual prosperity. They also talked about uh, something called recuperation, which refers to how radical ideas or images are taken in by the spectacle, by capitalist powers, and used, again, to uphold the spectacle. So I think that the power of the spectacle and the capitalist existence, <laughs> uh, it, in, in a lot of ways, it makes art... I don't want to say useless. That's not the word I'm using. <laughs> um, it, it weakens the potential for revolutionary art in the sense of an image you can produce that will like uh, get people to think about their lives and make it them want to change it. In because if you produce these images, you know maybe it'll have a little bit of, of an effect, but pretty soon a company is going to start using your image to sell their product or something. And to counter this, or sort of the opposite of that. Uh, to deal with the spectacle, they came up with this idea called detournement. I don't know how to pronounce it in French. Um, <laughs> but that is essentially taking images produced by capitalist society and repurposing them for your own means. They would take uh, uh, comics and they would fill in whatever they wanted in the speech bubbles so that all of the characters would be talking about like how much they hate capitalism. And I was thinking that current like memes, like you don't have to be a communist to do to turn them on. The whole generation now is just doing this for fun. You know, you take a PragerU video and you put some random shit in there and just make it funny and bizarre or maybe revolutionary in some way. And in that process, you sort of weaken the power of the spectacle in that this image of prosperity becomes laughable. So I think there's a lot of potential for that, for taking images produced by capitalist society and somehow turning them on your, their head. I like just graduated high school, so I'm not doing much at the moment, <laughs> but 
as I sort of mentioned in my speaky thing, <laughs> that I think there it's very necessary to start building these networks of mutual aid, which is the people getting together to help each other essentially and build their own autonomous power. I would love to get more involved in that, but at the same time, I think it's absolutely necessary, like more crucial than ever, when people are so disillusioned with capitalist society to form a solid revolutionary theory. And I, I see all of these things as sort of intersecting and they have to intersect. And eventually, uh, you know, if I think we're gonna live, they have to converge and expand into a social revolution. So I would like to personally be involved in like writing theory as well as mutual aid efforts. I hope I could get myself armed so I could protect myself and then get organized. We have uh, time for another round. Maybe get wait, but two. I was going to ask, um, first I was gonna say, what do you think of um, Greta, the climate activist of your generation? Um, but also, I guess just like, I guess, yeah, we're sort of in terms of what you see, I guess in your communities, but also in the media in terms of like how people are portraying, like, you know, on the one hand, there's like the Zoomer, like generation portrayals, like, you know, the sort of malaise, et cetera, but then also things like Greta or like Parkland kids and sort of like those kind of media moments. And I guess, yeah, sort of how do you, I guess, relate or not relate or, or you feel critical of those things or supportive of, yeah. Okay, so we're doing one last question. I think I saw the hand over here. Um, yeah, first of all, uh, thank you for speaking. It's like quite impressive how, uh, um, um, yeah, while, while you speak. I had a question for both you and also for Joshua Citarella as somebody who has been observing this for a while now. Um, I think it's quite easy as with anything in nowadays to, to witness something like this and to hear you guys speak and to think like, oh wow, um, this generation, there's this whole political, like at least awareness going on that I didn't see in my generation when I was your age. Um, but I wonder like how big of a percentage or how, like, are you the exception or are you the norm you feel like within your surroundings? Um, yeah, I guess that's the question. Uh, I mean, I would just quickly comment that these are among the most kind of gifted and, and talented and uh, people that have um, had the pleasure of interviewing this summer as part of a, a larger project. The majority of these right-wing spaces online are just quantitatively bigger than, than the left, um, but they are theoretically very flimsy, as you might imagine. And in that interview process, when pressed on questions, they would kind of fold or resort to memes or something like that. They wouldn't be able to last more than 10 minutes in the conversation. Uh, and and maybe, maybe I'll just, I'll give you guys the space then to respond about any of the questions that were mentioned, uh, Gen Z media events, uh, uh, Greta, uh, et cetera. I have a love-hate relationship with the climate movement as it currently stands, because 
I think in a lot of ways, what someone like Greta represents is sort of the inverse of what the average politogrammer is. Because Greta, she might not be theoretically perfect, but her heart's definitely in the right place, and I think she genuinely wants to cause change. While an average politogrammer theoretically might just be brilliant, but like, w- like morally and like ethically and like where their heart is, it just it's just like they're just there to be radical. Like they're just there because it's kind of fun to post a meme sometimes and like get in a debate with someone, and then like halfway through just start spamming them with some stupid like like meme slogan like people just like doing that because they're asshole kids and like someone like Greta and a lot of the kids who are genuinely involved in the climate movement they genuinely want to cause change like they want something to happen but 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 in terms of my personal thoughts on her go get them um (laughs) like I uh do I think it's really going to cause anything no do I think like even if she did cause something it would be what we needed probably not uh, do I even know what we need? No, but still, um, I think ultimately the thing with Greta is that, you know, she's, she's someone who's standing up for what she believes in. And I can't get mad at you for that. You know, I know a surprising amount of kids at my school who actually know like Max Sterner. And that's kind of terrifying to be in like a classroom of someone with <laughs> someone that you don't talk to and like, uh, uh like, <laughs> You've read like the ego in its own. Like he's like, please stay away from me. It's, but <laughs> because let's be real here. I mean, if I was in a classroom myself, I wouldn't want to talk to me. I mean, what's like just because of like like theoretical stuff. Like no one wants to get. In, most people don't want to get in these big like discussions about you know Althusser or something. Most people don't want to be like, okay, so how do we articulate a proper critique of structuralism? Like no, most people don't really care about that type of stuff. Like that's just what teenagers are like, and so like, I, I think I think that we're definitely not the norm, but I think, but I think the population of us is larger than you might expect, and I think that's uh, sort of in terms of at least leftist spaces, I, you can see that just in politogram. Like it's 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 crazy the amount of time I've like talked to, at times I've talked to someone and they've been like, oh wait, you're Middle Tennessee too, and I'm like, yeah, and I'm like, okay, like we're 15 miles away. Like that's that's weird. It's really weird to like meet someone in an online space and then be like, oh, you're really close to me, like geographically. And like, <laughs> and again, it puts you on edge, but um, it's not a big space, but it's bigger than you expect. And we aren't the norm, but I think we're growing every day. Whether that's a good or a bad thing, you decide. I think it's a mixture of both. Uh, so Greta, I mean, like, I'm not, I don't want to be like, I'm not trying to be like that guy behind the, like, critique of like Greta Thunberg. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I have, of course, have my own position on uh, fixing or fixes for climate change within the yeah, framework of capital or whatever. But like, I, mean, she, I don't know. Like, she's 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 nice. I don't. It does. It does. Like sort of irk me when I see like radicals on like Twitter or something writing these like threads like <laughs> talking about like like um like hating on like Greta or whatever. It's like it's like well like because I read it and I'm like the theoretical substance of what's being presented here isn't necessarily wrong. It's just like is Greta Thunberg really like is it really that useful to like go after some sixteen year old girl who's like I mean she, it was a nice speech that she had. You know? Better than mine, like. <laughs> and then uh, the other one was about is this sort of thing the norm among people our age and sort of concur, but at the same time, I think one thing I tried to get across was that while maybe reading sort of niche thinkers or whatever and like obsessing over that, that obviously that's not the norm. But what is the norm among people our age is pessimism and neuroses about the future, essentially. 
maybe maybe your experience was a little different. Maybe your people at your school are just like more interesting. I don't know. My <laughs> people, I at my high school there was nobody who I could really talk to any about like the sort of more you know reading and stuff. But but yeah, the, I think the main the important thing is that pessimism about the future. That's that's definitely the norm. Like these two were saying, definitely like pessimism is the norm. But I don't think it's only that i think part of why pessimism is so much the norm is that the solutions that have been presented to us are clearly to a lot of people inadequate i I never i wouldn't want to go after greta but i feel the need to point out that the reason we hear so much about greta is that uh, her message specifically has been propped up by uh like green ngos and stuff like that who's and their, their jobs depend very heavily on reinforcing what I would say is the myth that we can address climate change through the existing institutions. There have been so many like indigenous kids who have been talking about how our culture is destroying people's livelihoods and they've been totally ignored because they what they're saying isn't conducive to reproducing this myth. I think if we uplift the idea that uh, change doesn't have to come from existing institutions, but can come directly from the action of kids, that maybe, maybe that pessimism will start to go away if we start to get more faith in our own power. And I guess sort of linking to that, wrapping up my thoughts is, there is an in, a kind of inevitable at this point disaster, but it doesn't have to lead to global ecofascism or the death of billions and billions and billions. Like there's going to be a disaster, but the way that we respond to it, it could be a collective movement to uplift and help each other and to preserve what we can of the earth. Uh, and I think that's really the only way we can have life in the future. Thank you guys uh, so much for coming and speaking today and sharing your thoughts and insights and anxieties. Why don't we wrap and thanks to the audience for coming.